to the mini break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Sunday, January 22nd. We've reached the halfway point of the 2023 Australian Open, and the year's first major event, it's delivered us some exciting results over the course of the past few days. Of course, so much craziness unfolding over the course of the past 24 hours. In fact, for just the second time in the Open era, neither of the top seeds in singles competition will have reached the quarterfinal round of this event. Both Rafael Nadal and now Iga Sviantek have been knocked out of the tournament. What does that mean? Well, it guarantees us an exciting week two at the year's first major. And there's so much excitement ahead that we figured we'd break today's episode down into two parts. We want to recap where each of the singles draws stand heading into week two on this show. We're going to focus on the crazy that is the women's singles draw in particular. And if we plan on breaking down all the madness, you know I always like to have some help along the way. Thankfully, I have exactly that as joining me on today's show once again is a returning champion of returning champions here at Crack Rack. It's a man who I assume all of you have been reading throughout the course of the past week as his work has been all over our friends at Tennis.com. Of course, you know him as an editorial producer over there, a essentially co-host of this mini break podcast. And according to his shirt today, endorsed by Billie Jean King, it's our dear friend, David Kane. David, welcome back to the show. Exciting week two ahead. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I got my pink hat. I got my BJK <laughs> shirt on. I'm ready to talk some ladies. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. And look, I mean, again, I want to talk about the draw. Certainly, we have plenty of storylines to get into, but I have been in awe of what you guys have churned out throughout the course of week number one at tennis.com. If you had to pick one piece that all of our readers, all of our listeners, excuse me, go to and read from you over the course of week one, what are you leading them to? Gosh, I've written a whole coterie of stuff. I write some, <laughs> you know, I write some serious stuff from for tennis.com. I write some silly stuff for baseline. I think the one the one I think the one narrative I'm happiest with is the whole Garoon rap that I wrote uh when he beat uh who did he, who did he beat in the third round? <laughs> He hasn't dropped a set. I'll oh, tell you that much. He hasn't dropped a set. It was oh Umber, Hugo yeah. Umber. Um, yeah, because it was. There's been rumors or rumors purported by him that he's one of the uh, potential cast members for a potential second season of Breakpoint. And in light of all the Netflix curse discourse, he took an unfortunate spill early in the second set. And you're thinking, oh my God, is a Netflix curse already seeing into the future? And it didn't. And I feel like if we're thinking of second season people, I think. Uh, uh, Holgerun is definitely a must watch for next year. I think he's, I think he's already setting himself for a great 2023, but also just some, some goofy steps, your alley risks, you know, complaining to the umpire and to Carolyn Kramer, uh, WTA supervisor, who's named Carolyn, by the way, you guys, it's not Carolyn. I'm seeing that so much on Twitter and it's just driving me up a wall. Yeah, no, I mean, there has definitely been some extracurricular storylines that have littered this year's first major, and a couple of them, actually, let's check in on quickly. One, let's do the Netflix curse thing, and I know I'm going to talk about it with Gil Gross on our newest episode, uh, Breaking Down Breakpoint. Hi, Gilbert. (laughs) (laughs) Are you a believer in the Netflix curse? Where are you with the discourse surrounding it? Because I think we've taken it too far. Listen, I think, I mean, I've learned this the hard way. It is very hard to follow a player indefinitely. It's certainly for any sustained period of time, because it is much more likely than not that they're going to get injured, that something is going to happen and they're going to be off the tour for a significant period of time. I mean, before the Netflix curse, there was the My Tennis Life curse over Tennis Channel. We would have players... (laughs) 
ready to go at the beginning of the year. And by May, May June, they'd have injuries, issues. They weren't, they didn't want to, they weren't able to film anymore. They have to get replaced by somebody else. It is, it is a, a 10 month contract with a player is, is rough because you never know what's going to happen. It's not a typical sports season. It's only a couple of months. They're only playing a couple of weeks a month out of the year. These are, this is a grueling sport. And so it's not surprising, especially in light of what we were discussing at the end of last season, how players were going to pull up after effectively eschewing off-season activities. They were playing EXOs. They were playing all these events, not coming in to January, perhaps as fresh as they otherwise would be. So you see players like Tomajanovic, Palapadosa, Nick Kyrgios, all pulling out before the tournament even started. And then perhaps feeling that extra pressure coming into the slam under that spotlight, having to do a lot of extra media before the tournament even began about the Netflix series. It's not surprising that they're under a bit of pressure, not feeling their best, and they all ended up going out before the quarterfinals. Yeah, I, again, I think you have to take each case in a vacuum. Like Fritz losing to Popperin. Popperin played lights out. Like that's not a Netflix curse. That's a hometown kid or a home countryman playing his best tennis in front of that home country. And just, you know, again, it was the perfect matchup for him in Taylor Fritz. Again, like Felix reaching the round of 16. Is that a curse? That's a pretty typical result for Felix. I don't know if I see any curse in that. Now, to your point, the wave of withdrawals we have seen is certainly something uh, that dates back to how short the offseason is. I also think the flip side of that, though, if you're trying to do glass half full, you have seen players carry momentum over from the end of last year and bring it pretty immediately here into 2023. But, like, it's glass half full, glass half empty. Glass half empty, Netflix curse discourse gets very annoying. You know, again, to see every loss, oh, it's the Netflix curse. Everyone thinks they're the first one to make the Netflix curse joke, and I guess the sad truth I will reveal to you listeners is you're not. Um, The glass half full perspective, at least people are talking about it. Like they're talking about the series. They're incorporating it into the discourse, trying to legitimize it, normalize it. I don't know, whatever of the eyes is you want to turn to. So I guess that would be the glass half full talk is all press is good press. And certainly Netflix show is getting some press throughout the course of this uh, year's first major. But yeah, I think that's silly discourse, number one. Now, this isn't silly discourse. This is serious, and I think it's a discussion that's been amplified over the course of the past few rounds, particularly given Andy Murray playing till whatever it was, 4.30 a.m. against Kokonakis, and Vika last night not getting off the court till past 2 a.m. as well. The late-night match sessions. Now, again, there's two perspectives to look at this. The matches that go past 2 a.m., 3 a.m., particularly when they are three or five set thrillers as these set of matches have been, they're often the ones that get discussed. They're often the ones that shine a light, sometimes in a positive way, of the gladiator nature of this sport. On the flip side, Tennis shoots itself in the foot once again by A, having these matches at the crack of dawn where only three people are watching them in person, and B, you feel like through better scheduling, this is a conflict that might be able to be avoided, that those five-set gladiator matches can happen, I don't know, between 7 p.m. and midnight like they should. Where are you on this late-night match debacle? I mean, it's certainly becoming a drum that is getting beaten with more frequency this time around, so... If the PTPA made a statement, to... David, so you know it's serious. Oh, so you know it's serious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, it was a straight down the middle sort of a statement as we've gotten used to from the PTP, PTPA. They're, they like to make a stance. They don't actually take one, but they they make a stance. And you see that they've made one. Um, but, I mean, listen, not to be crass, but when we're talking about changes in tennis, 
I don't anticipate a change being made that doesn't result in bottom lines being affected. And whether the players finish at 2 p.m. or 2 a.m., I don't think that necessarily affects the tournament's bottom line. I mean, they're certainly selling tickets to these night sessions, whether players, whether people are sticking around to watch the players at three in the morning is a different story. They've already sold the seats. And, you know, if you're going to make substantive changes to the schedule, they're starting at 11 a.m. The only thing that you could really see fit to change things to make things end earlier is to reduce the men's tour to best of three. And as we know, everyone's very sensitive about best of three versus best of five. They like their best of five. I have my own opinions about it, but, you know, and I certainly, and of course, as that conversation comes up, what always frustrates me is this very insincere argument from the likes of Jamie Murray, who trotted out this example that I hate, which is that, well, if it wasn't for best of five, Andy would have lost in straight sets in the first round, which is just such a bad faith argument. If you like best of five, you are allowed to like best of five. Sure. If you love tennis, you want to watch more tennis. Fantastic. There's a five hour match waiting for you, but to suggest that a Kokonakis Murray match would play the exact same way in a best of three format versus best of five format. These are two different universes. You can't just arbitrarily chop off the end of a match and say, this is what would have happened. Kokonakis got tight in the third set. He would have got tight at the second if it was a best of three match. I mean, that's just, these are, if we're going to project, that's yeah, that's what you project. You don't project the score line. So that's the only way it's going to change things. And I don't anticipate best of five changing anytime soon. So therefore I think we're kind of just stuck to what we would call the luck of the draw. And some players are going to finish at one in the afternoon and some are going to finish at one in the morning. And that's just the way it goes. And hopefully you hope that with the advancements in recovery and conditioning that they'll be ready for the next match. I mean, it's, it's, but it stinks for the players and it stinks for the fans of those players who maybe wanted to watch a Vika Azarenka match at 10 PM and instead, you know, had to go home because it didn't end until two in the morning. Yeah. No, very well said. Obviously there are things we have hashed out on this podcast before. Does the first week for the men going best of three make sense? You save the best of five for the second week. And, you know, again, does that help the scheduling? Because it's really the first week of the event where the scheduling mishaps are perhaps most pronounced just because there are so many more matches happening on the grounds. To your point, there's a very feverish best of five support group that will be very vocal in trying to ensure that that never happens. And again, we don't have to rehash that argument now. You put less matches in the night session, have one instead of two, or, you know, again, try to ensure that you're not put in this scenario. You feel like if you play a best of five match first in the night session, well, if it goes five sets, the next match isn't starting until at least 11 p.m. And at that point, you're playing past midnight. You are just setting yourself up for failure in those scenarios. And, of course, tournaments try to pretty consistently switch who plays first, the men or the women, uh, on any given night session. You're right. They, again, you nailed it. To ask for any change, it's unlikely, particularly if it affects the bottom line. And if they're able to sell out the night session with the two-match guarantee, then that is what they're going to continue to do. So it's certainly, given, to your point, the vocal nature of this issue, it does feel like many people have continued to chime in on it. Perhaps it is a discussion that will receive more thought uh, over the course of the next few months. But with that said, enough of the off-court stuff. Let's get on the court. Because I will say, this Australian Open has continued to deliver. And I kind of really liked the sequence of events, how first round, and honestly, both the men's and women's side, things kind of progressed pretty steadily. We didn't have too many dramatic upsets, even Jabur getting knocked out early and, you know, Rafa, given the context of his early knockout, 
it felt like the top seeds were all progressing sort of steadily. But then, you know, again, the moment these top seeds started going head-to-head DK, we started to get some serious drama unfolding at the Australian Open. And so I've got storylines for you. My biggest at this halfway point, of course, the place we have to start is the fact that world number one Iga Sviantek has been knocked out of the draw. Sviantek eliminated in straight sets in the fourth round by Elena Rabakina. Rabakina, a 6-4-6-4 victory. Now, of course, I want to talk about the big picture. Look at this match where we have each of these players now moving forward. But first, let's get into the nitty-gritty. In this 4-4 victory for Elena Rabakina, let's be clear, she was down 40-15 in both of the first two games of the first set. She wins both of them and somehow through the first four games finds herself at 2-all. Similarly, she's down 3-0 to open set number two, wins six of the next seven games. And, you know, again, when I look at this match, and it's something we have discussed before, David, and I get to say it in the 14th minute of the show, this is is what Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club is all about. That ability to just hit your opponent off the court, to play unequivocally on your terms from start to finish, to disrupt whatever it is your opponent is trying to do and say, make or miss, this match is on my racket. That's what Elena Rabakina ultimately turned this match into. And again, it started from the start. Down 40-15 in Sviantec's opening service game. What does she do? Two straight return winners to get herself back to do. Same thing, down 15-40 in her first service game. What does she do? Two big first serves, two plus one winners to get herself back to do. Zerbakina wins 80% of her first serve points in this match. You know, it, it was outstanding. Like, it was what elite power tennis looks like. Was it not, DK? I said I talked about this in my wrap of the match, now available on tennis.com. But I think what we're seeing over the last couple of months with Ika Sviantek is that the book on her is out. But the good slash bad news for her in this situation is that very few players know how to read the book. <laughs> I think <laughs> if you're going to beat Ika, you have to hit through her. You have to attack her serve and you have to not give her time to work out those ground strokes and work out a plan. I think Ika is someone who's very you know, cerebral and wants to be able to think through her way through matches. And Elena did not allow her that time. So that's the bad news. The good news for Iga is that outside of Rabakina, we're talking maybe Arena Sabalenka, maybe Madison Keys, end of list in terms of players with that kind of firepower these days who can hit an Iga Sviantek off the court. The Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club is like about the size of a small book club at this point. It is not the way that this game has evolved for the women is I I was talking about this last night. We've created a, a ceiling essentially of power where players can be consistently imposing without being powerful. And just to look at the top eight women other than Sabalenka and maybe Garcia to a lesser extent, because I think Garcia has a bit of a speedy power, not necessarily a heavy power. You're not seeing like, big ball bashing tennis that we used to see at the early 2000s, whether it was your Williams sisters, your Sharapovas, your Capriotis, your Celises, your Davenports, these were heavy hitting players. And with the way that things have evolved over the last 20 years, that kind of player has pretty much receded. But we are perhaps starting to see a Reebok and a Sabalenka really find that level of consistency, where if they can be that consistent in these matches, 
it is going to be that much more difficult for Iga to maintain her place at the top. Well, that brings us to the big picture discussion, and it veers us away from this match specifically, but it's fascinating. I actually think there's a blend between those late 90s, early 2000s power tennis players that you alluded to, the Lindsay Davenports of the world, and dare I say, the next generation of Caroline Wozniacki and Simona Halep. And now you kind of have to be somewhere in between those two polar opposites where you can't just be this. Wozniacki is the best example of the polar opposite in the other direction where you need to have that Wozniacki physicality. But guess what? You also have to have some weapons if you want to succeed at the top of women's tennis. And to your point, the small group of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club players. And I'm so glad Maybe even unwillingly, you included that in your description there because it slipped in. I know, I know, it slipped in though. Garcia, from a serving perspective, you're right. I just think it's not relentless power; it's aggressive power. Everything she's doing is early and on the rise, and it's a byproduct of her striking the ball early, not necessarily a byproduct of some inherent power tennis she's capable of playing. Just neutral ball, mock six, rip on both wings, the way a Sabalenka can, who's not an inductee yet because she doesn't have the Slam title, but. Ostapenko, right now the lights are flickering over there. That would be another name, Rabakina. Samsonova's a lot of caddy at the country club. She doesn't have formal membership yet. I think we both agree Chin Wen is a player who's maybe not quite there yet, but perhaps could be on that list soon. But it's a very narrow list. And Elena Rabakina, this is how we'll come back to her, has firmly placed herself on that list. And you're absolutely right. It sounds so like it's it's such easy bullet points, right? When you're talking about the game plan to knock out Iga Shviantek. Take her serve early, be aggressive, go down swinging. You'd rather make an error than play an extended physical point because the longer the point goes, the more likely you are to do it. And by the way, play with pace through her forehand. It's easy to say out loud, very, very difficult to execute that in reality. And that's exactly what Rabakina did. And I also think with Rabakina, there's a component that needs to be discussed where because of her size, she's what, like 5'11", 6 feet, maybe just over that threshold. With how heavy Sviantek hits the ball, particularly her forehand wing, that ball popped up right into Rabakina's strike zone every time. And I do think, again, this match specifically, and I think Sabalenka has a similar size, it's fascinating to see both of them, to your point, know the book of, okay, got to take the ball early, on the rise, be aggressive, and also how well Sviantek's ball actually allows each of them to do that. Like, I do think from a matchup perspective, particularly on a hard court, not clay, where movement becomes more of a factor and Iga's ball is that much heavier, it's it's like a, it's a pretty solid matchup for Rabakina in the sense that, like, look... I don't have to worry about the topspin. You're going to give that to me. I get to bunt down and swing through everything. Now, again, she had to execute perfectly, and that's what she did. But to your point, the game plan was very clear, right? And she was just able to execute it. I mean, I don't even know if she had to execute it perfectly. I think she had to deliver a B plus, A minus version of what Rebecca can do. And I think that is a testament to the the height of the Rabakina ceiling. I mean, we've, we've sure. been very impressed by her at her best. She's obviously had lulls. Where, the champ. She's won a slam. Yeah. We've had lulls where the game wasn't working. And for the last yeah. like six months, basically after Wimbledon, it was like, oh, what the hell happened? But I mean, <laughs> when she is playing good to great, this is a big stumbling block for a player like Ego, who, to be fair, like I, as I want to clarify, 
she is not easy to hit through by any stretch of the ima- yes. imagination. As you no, said, no, you have to have the elite of the yeah, elite weapons because there is a does. level of power on the women's yeah. game right now. It is just not this extreme level of power that can be channeled consistently against someone like Iga. And so, I mean, we saw it in the first round against Yula Niemeyer. She was up five three against her in the in the in the second set. She was able to do it to five three. There are very few players who could do it six six through the through the through two out of three sets. So, I mean. I have to think that a player like a Rabakin, it felt like even Sabalenka and Fort Worth were starting to get the sense, okay, now I know how to play her. And now it's going to be on Ego, who has infinite weapons at her disposal to figure out what she can do yes. to weather these storms. Because Rabakin, it did have streaky elements of play, but she was able to keep the game in consistently enough and really didn't have sufficient resistance from Shantek. And I would expect her in a rematch to have a better sense of how to combat this power. Well, this gets back to the matchup-specific thing. Rabakina ate Iga's kick serve alive. Like, the moment it was a kick serve, shoulder height, bunting down, forehand, backhand wing. I may miss the return, and to Iga's credit, she wins 57% of both her first and second serve points, which, again, I think is a stat-padding number. That, like, 57%. It was worse than that if you actually watched this match unfold. It felt like whenever Rabakina wanted to pull the trigger on a couple of returns consecutively, she had the opportunity to take those returns early on the rise. And again, over the last 52 weeks, Iga has been a top 10 server by percentage on the WTA Tour. The results have certainly manifested that. But you're right, creating a few more easy chances for herself, particularly when facing the elite of the elite servers or the elite of the elite power tennis, just making life easier for herself so she doesn't have to rely on that physicality because those sorts of players aren't going to provide those opportunities for her. Yeah, that's the last step. That's the final form. And guess what? Saying, hey, a 21-year-old really just needs to get more consistent with their first serve, and then they're going to be a lot better five years down the road. That's like the perfect position to be. And I don't think it's a big concern. Like, I'm not – here's how I would frame it. The stock for Iga is no lower coming out of this match. The stock for Rabakina has now just risen back to where it should be. And again, for Elena Rabakina in this match, 59 total points to Sviantec's 51. It indicates how close this 4-4 four four match really was. Again, Iga had the 3-0 lead in the second set. She really should have been up 3-1 at the start of the first as well. 110 total points in this match, a grand total of 41 of them, so about 36%, went over five shots, the rallies. The majority of this match was 0-4. to four. And in those 0-4s, to fours, first shot, first strike tennis, Rabakina won 41 of those points, Iga won 28. That was the difference in this match. Rabakina played on her terms. She was better at executing the first strike. She kept the pressure on Sviantec. And again, this is who Rabakina's really been since the start of 2020, right? When she has good runs in Shenzhen, and I forget what the other warm-up event was where I think she had a successful run there before. I think Hobart. Yeah, before losing to Barty, third-round Australian Open. And I would just point out now, again, it's the start of 2023. So over the course of three years now, she's won two-thirds of her matches, 107 and 56. Two-thirds rule gets you in the conversation for the top 15. Against top 20 opponents, since the start of 2020, She's 21 and 21 overall. Like That's pretty darn good in this era of, eh, like who is the best? We don't know. Well, she's pretty good against the best always. 8 and 12 against the top 10, including wins in three of her last four matches. Yeah, like, again, ceiling moving forward. We had this discussion in December. 
Rabakana is tier one now, right? Like this is just the reminder and this is probably the exclamation point that puts her in that category. Yeah, I mean, I worry that we are, you know, this is a bit of recency bias because we sure. have seen her take these dips. We saw her take it at the end of 2020. We saw her take it at the end of 2022 and a little bit even, I think, at the end of 2021 when she was, I think, one of those outside players to potentially um, make the WTA finals. But I bump a little bit on the idea that Iga's stock hasn't changed because I think when you go, okay. when we were going into this year, the question was, how can you beat Iga when she's playing at her best? And I think definitively after this match, you could say you can if you can hit through her. And I said, that is a bit of... A ding, because I think when we're watching Rabakina play at her best, or at least with, with Rabakina, we knew what to expect. If she's playing at her best, she's hitting through players and is essentially almost unbeatable. And how do you how do you combat that? And you would have thought, I think, in a way that Iga's combination of sort of counterpunching, athleticism, anticipation would be enough to maybe stumble a Rabakina into some errors, and that didn't happen. So when if both of them are playing good to great and Rabakina is winning. It's a big it's a big tick in her favor and and it's an interesting perhaps sign of where the game is going because now we're seeing Rabakina win last night. We saw Ostapenko win. We're seeing Sabalenka do really well, even Adana Vekic potentially making the quarterfinals. This is definitely a tournament that is rewarding the big hitters, which as someone who enjoys watching big hitting, <laughs> it's been a pretty good 24 hours for me. Yeah, but I'm not ready to go there because it's the first major of the year. I know we just talked about at the beginning how not everyone is, you know, there's not really an off season. So how fresh are you? But relative to other portions of the calendar, this is about as fresh as everyone's going to be. And I do think that benefits the ball bashers who, you know, they're a little fitter. They have a little bit more time to get to the ball, a little bit better time to execute what they're going, what they want to go through, as opposed to in September when regardless of how much rest you have, your legs are empty anyways. I also, you know, again, did Iga play good to great in this match? That's a fascinating proposition. Um, yeah, I'd say she played she played well, like fifteen well. winners. I don't, know, I don't think she played great. Yeah, yeah but, I mean, yeah, I think she had more winners than errors too. I think by the end. Yeah, so. but again, I think this has more to do with Rabakina than Sviantek. Not that you have disagreed with that premise, but that Rabakina is play, capable of playing that elite tier of power tennis. Again, the list of players who can even flash that level is like five players long, as we established. So am I that concerned for Iga that there are five players in the world who it seems like are capable of executing the game plan on any given day? And by the way, they have to do it at their best. Like, had Rabakina to it 24 winners against 25 unforced errors, if she's 10% worse in this match... Iga probably finds a way to get through, or at the very least, force a third set. I still think you have to play so well to beat Sviantek, but this gets back to, again, the December question I posed to you. Iga's a tier one talent. Who else is up there with her? That, again, is my biggest takeaway from this is, okay, like, Rabakina belongs on that list. And, you know, to transition out of this match, because, again, Rabakina into the quarterfinals, where she is joined by just a plethora of power tennis players in this Australian Open quarterfinal. It is really just coming after David's heart. You listeners should see the smile on his face, how excited he is for this second half. But that's my second question to you here, my second biggest storyline, DK. Is that the adjustment everyone sees? It's, okay, we know we have to chase Iga. How the hell are we going to chase Iga? Well, if you and I can notice playing with pace and doing these things are how it seems like there's any sort of chance of beating her, you imagine the smartest tennis minds in the world are seeing that as well. And I joked about this during the United Cup. I swear to God, you know, much like a football team 
Michigan football has a drill that they, you know, a, an Ohio State specific drill that they spend an hour working on each and every week. I swear to God, Jessica Pagula during the month of December had a drill called the Schwiantek drill, which is like, hey, for 15 minutes straight, you're just going to hit every ball as hard as humanly possible. And it doesn't matter if you make 70% of errors during the course of these next 15 minutes. You are just going to learn how to hit this gear. It feels like, again, and some of these players have more inherent weapons, but Pagula is playing more aggressive. Rabakina, Ostapenko. Obviously, you have Sabalenka, who has looked outstanding through this first month of the year. Garcia is still alive. The Pliskova resurgence. The Vekic resurgence. Obviously, uh, Belinda Bencic right now, according to some statistics, has been the best player through the first month of this 2023 season. And certainly, she has put that second week slam yips myth to rest by reaching fourth week here, right round number one, uh, slam number one of the season. So David Kane, with all that in mind, I ask you, is power tennis back or is this just a flash in the pan? Oh boy, I hope so. I mean, it's, um, I mean, to your point, I will say that, you know, to the extent that it perhaps is not a sea change for Iga Shviantek, there are only a certain number of players capable of producing a consistent level of power. It's not like it's not like Maria Sakari is suddenly going to show up to a match against Egan and be able to hit a 90 mile an hour forehand. Like that's just sure. not. So in that way, there is still a bit of a buffer, but it is a little bit interesting to start to see these Rapakinas, Sabalenka's, Beckages, Garcia's, Garcia, who I thought I was convinced would go out in the second round to Layla Fernandez. Not a prediction that aged particularly well. Actually, Layla did counter point. chances in that one. Yeah, it was a great match. Not a bad prediction at all. It was what, like six and five? Like Layla had so many more breakpoint chances than Garcia did during the match. Not a bad prediction at all. Bondrusova Jabor, that one I got. Just yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it is interesting to see because I was asking this question yesterday. I said, how, why hasn't the evolution in racket tech, in conditioning, why hasn't that elevated big hitters with the same proportional proportionality that it seems to have for those who can maintain a consistent level of aggression without breathtaking aggression? It's And someone actually, one of my uh, close friends actually brought up the idea that the that the template for this modern player is really a Victoria Azarenka, a player who can be suffocating from the baseline, but is not someone who is hitting audacious winners. And she was able to do that against Julin uh, early this morning uh, to reach the quarterfinals. So it's, um, it, it feels like perhaps it's just all kind of everything all happening at once. Everything's all kind of coming together for a lot of these power players at once. You know, Vekic is finally feeling healthy. Garcia is riding off of a wave of confidence as is Sabalenka, you know, I wouldn't put Benchich in the power conversation necessarily, but I think to look at the rest and even to a lesser extent of an Azarenka and a Pagula, I think Pagula is more in that Azarenka line of someone who can be powerful, but isn't necessarily going to club the ball the way that a Rabakina is. So I think, I mean, looking at the top of the game, we the, the women in the field have had three years with a similar template of a number one, whether it was Barty or Sviantek, someone who's tremendously athletic, someone who has a good amount of variety, solid mental toughness. How do you beat either of them is to try to learn how to hit through them more consistently. And so I think the players with those weapons are perhaps have been putting their head down over the last, you know, 18 months, figuring out how to do that. And maybe it's all coming together. It's it's something we're going to have to re- really look out for in the next six months, whether Iga and these sort of just, I'll call them athletes are able to compete with the raw power of this, you know, surging wave. Yeah. It's again, 
It is fascinating, though, to see the power tennis some of these players are capable of playing. Again, to see Ostapenko, let's talk about that match now for her to uh, get through. Yeah, that Coco Goff matchup. Ostapenko, a 5-3 and three victory yesterday. Now, again, Goff had a wave of breakpoint chances in set number one. And if you're asking me who played the better first set, in my opinion, I thought Goff was the better player through that first set. But, man, credit to Yelena Ostapenko, who... Not only just a stark reminder of the power tennis she's capable of playing from start to finish in this match. 30 winners against 27 unforced errors, won 80% of her first serve points. It wasn't just that she was able to overwhelm Goff. It just felt like Goff was consistently on the slide, right? Like it felt like she was always fully stretched out. And credit to Ostapenko, who did plenty of attacking of the Coco Goff forehand. But more than anything else, said, no, no, no. How I'm going to set up attacking your forehand is I'm actually going to hit the ball through you on the backhand wing. And I'm going to have you pushed so far in the backhand corner that I am just going to have a runway of space to attack through the forehand. Now, Goff is such an incredible athlete that she's usually tracking down that ball and forcing Ostapenko to do one more thing. But again, credit to Ostapenko, who did that one more thing so well throughout the course of yesterday. And here's the fun one to me. Zero to four shots, these two players played each other evenly. And I actually think that's a big credit to Goff's progress as a plus one first strike player. I think she's gotten a lot better and more comfortable moving forward as well. But in the rallies that went five plus shots, Ostapenko won 28 of them. Goff won 15. And that right there epitomizes what I mean when I say it wasn't Ostapenko going for first ball winners. It was Ostapenko setting up an opportunity for herself to play through the forehand that then opened up anything else. I mean, you tweeted it out, first quarterfinal for Ostapenko since 2018. Like, DK, where has this tennis been? Because it's always been evident that she's capable of doing it. The immortal words of Flava Flav, Goldie, where you been? <laughs> it's been too long. And she did vow after she lost that really ugly, awful Wimbledon match to Tatiana Maria that she would never lose another match like that again. And so... So far, so good. She's in her first Australian Open quarterfinal. But I have to do start with, with Goff a little bit. And having watched the match, the forehand does look better. I've been no one is harsher on the Coco Goff forehand than me. It does look better. However, this is now the third Grand Slam match in a row where Goff has been up against a player that she really should be able to beat, even at her baseline game, the game that took her to the French Open final, a power hitter that she should be able to, you know, out rally outserve, you know, and be able to take advantage of unforced errors and beat them. And she lost to Anissimova at Wimbledon. She lost to Car- Caroline Garcia at the U.S. Open in a match that I was convinced Goff would just ta- have the total mental ascendancy on Garcia. Garcia ends up winning that one in straight sets. Well, especially again, after Goff beat Keys in the way that she did at that U.S. Open where you're like, she's well, got it now. Well, I just I think know, it was like, that. well, it's just like you've seen power tennis the first time. It's like you can do it again, right? True. I mean, she was definitely warmed up for it. But I yeah, mean, that's what I meant. And I definitely had Keys in a bucket with Garcia I'm thinking like these are two players with yes, a exactly. definite mental ceiling. So against Ostapenko to get out, she got outserved by Aliona yeah. Ostapenko. I mean, that is Ostapenko. I think only hit three double faults in that match. I mean, that is a big reason why Ostapenko loses these matches. The serve just doesn't show up, and she got into a lot of close games with Goff and was able to hold her serve. And that just, I think, opened up the Ostapenko aggression to just go full tilt. I mean, she was rocking the ball off both sides. I mean, again, the fact that, you know, Goff's forehand went up against Ostapenko's forehand was a little bit laughable given just how much better of a shot uh, the Latvians is. But I mean, just a phenomenal one for her. Ostapenko 
ended last year at the WTA finals in doubles, feeling like, you know, had I not gotten this wrist injury in the spring, I would have been able to carry that Dubai form through the year. That Dubai form looks like it's back. And we, we're set up now for a really fa- fascinating quarterfinal against Robakina, sort of a, a contrast in personality, if not a contrast in style. Uh, she certainly seems to have endeared herself to the Australian Open crowd, Ostapenko. And so one of them is going to be a Grand Slam semifinalist, which is which is really good news. Yeah, I mean, look, you talk about Ostapenko out-serving Goff. Here's what I will say. It was a particularly poor serving performance for Coco Goff, who made just 50% of her first serves in this match. Now, um, I do think it's worth pointing out, Ostapenko, three for three on breakpoint chances. I think she only had one in the first set and she managed to convert, or two in the first set and she managed to convert each of them. Excuse me. Uh, no, no, no. I think it was one in the first set and she managed to convert it. Goff, one of eight on breakpoint chances. One of eight. Like, especially, there were a couple love 40 holes. She, I know she had a love 40, I want to say three all in the first set where, again, Ostapenko was able to just land a first strike deep into a corner to open up attacking the forehand. It was the same game plan over and over again and credit to Astapenko for executing it so well. That said, I don't think this was a bad loss for Coco Goff. We'll get to have it for the first time here in 2023, David. Good win, bad loss. I mean, the way Astapenko played, it's not a bad loss. I mean, the I way agree. that she was That's able to just exactly. open up the court. I mean, if you look at it on paper, I mean, I... I so let me I... ask you this. Is this the JV version of Rabakana Iga, where it's like Astapenko sort of did the JV version of, you know, Rabakana and Goff was the JV Iga? Yeah. I mean, stylistically, you you have like an athlete who's not necessarily the most powerful, but someone who has a lot of mental toughness, someone who's armed with typically an effective, if not overwhelming serve. I would say even perhaps in some instances, golf serve is better than than Sviantex because she's able to get a bit more miles per hour. But um, yeah, up against a big hitter who is thought to be mentally fragile at times, technically fragile at other times, and all of that held up and made for a pretty straight, I mean, to look at it, it's funny. To look at it on paper, knowing what we know about them, you would have thought Schwantik and Goff win. But knowing what we know about them just in a bubble, based on just weapons combine, you would think that Ostapenko and Rabakina are the higher-ranked players just based on what they were able to do on the court with that power. And so this feels like a little bit of a writing of the universe in many respects, especially for me growing up watching power players dominate the crafty athletes and the crafty athletes have really had it all their own way the last couple of years. So it's interesting to see that that change just a little bit, maybe if only for now. Yeah. By the way, Rabakina now three and one in her career in the round of 16. Ostapenko four and one in her career in the round of 16. She won her very first major that she made the round of 16. That was the 2017 French Open. Three Wimbledon round of 16 since then. Now through to the quarterfinals for the first time in Australia uh, after her victory over Goff. And again, sets up a very fun battle at the top of the draw. Rabakina versus Ostapenko. I mean, again, we've talked about the power tennis players. Let's flip gears a little bit. What's your biggest surprise of the event so far? Well, I did pick Pagula to go out pretty early, and that didn't end up happening. That that Pagula-Brenda-Fervertova matchup didn't end up uh, panning out the way I anticipated. Um, what is my biggest surprise? So is it Linda Fruvertova into the round of 16, that a player who I always joke around with you, I've yet to eliminate from the greatest of all time conversation, is now into a second week at a major for the first time. The fact that 17 years old, she's currently sitting out a new career hive, number 51 in the live rankings, youngest player inside the top 100, youngest player inside the top 75, youngest player inside the top 51 as well. Like, is she, for her to <laughs> beat Von Drusova in three sets the way that she did, uh, that, again, credit to uh, Fumatoma, she's been really good. 
I mean, Ferbertova to me is very much like a beta goth, someone with, you know, a lot of confidence, a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff sort of just propelling her forward. And she ended up against Ivan Drusova, who couldn't walk at the end of that match and, you know, was able to get over the finish line there. I mean, I expect a Fervatova to be making Grand Slam third, fourth rounds. Now, whether she can consistently make quarters, semis, finals. I mean, we're starting to see Goff hit a ceiling in many respects. Obviously, she did make the Roland Garros final, but third round, fourth round, fourth round. You know, So w- whether she has the weaponry to really push past. I mean, the way that Vekic is playing has certainly been a shock. You know, I spoke to her before the tournament, just excited to talk about her fashion line. And it turns out, you know, the, the game is looking even better than the clothes this week. So I, that was a bit of a surprise. And it's cool to see what Pam Shriver has been able to do as a coaching consultant. I mean, that's been an interesting twist and a new name that we obviously know very well as an analyst and a commentator to see her, you know, throwing her hat in the coaching ring and, and turning out some immediate results and just some I mean, to bagel Samsonova in the second round, that's probably maybe my single most surprising result of the first week. And then obviously with uh, Rabakina Svantec not that far behind, because I did think Iga was looking good enough. And I didn't think Rabakina was playing phenomenally in a way that was going to necessarily bludgeon Svantec in straight sets the way that she did. Yeah, I mean, I really like Fruvertova's backhand. I love the length of it, just her ability to extend through the court, down the line, cross court. She's crafty as well. And, you know, I, she's playing with Ali Risk, right? It's the two of them that were in doubles. Cause I think I saw yes. Fruvertova yes, just yes. standing there as well. And I was like, don't good drag commu- Lynn. Good communicator, though, Linda. I mean, she really effectively I got know. to the core of the issue very quickly. I was yeah, like, She's go. like, let's not mess around. She's like, look, it hit her in the leg. Can it we just her, ask her? I, that yeah. wasn't even what the conversation was about at first. She had to step yeah. in. It was like, no, no, I got this. It yeah. hit her leg. And then she she said sorry. Yeah, like, can we just talk about it? Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, look, you look for Fruvertova, again, 17 years old in her career, 69 and 38. So she's won 65% of her first, what, 107 matches before she's turned 18. She's 25 and 18 overall at the tour level, but got that big title at the end of the year uh, last season. And now she's into the fourth round of a major for the first time in her career. Let's not forget, she was someone who played qualifying at the 2022 U.S. Open. And now she finds herself number 51 in the live rankings. That's awesome. I agree. That's not the biggest surprise, though. The biggest surprise, DK, I'll offer it to you right here. 33-year-old Zheng Shui. Excuse me. Happy belated birthday. 34-year-old Zheng Shui. Into the fifth round of 16 in her career at, at a major in singles. Three of them have come in this COVID era. September 2020, she does it at Roland Garros. Last year, she does it at the U.S. Open. Now she does it again here at the Australian Open. She's essentially playing the best tennis of her career at 33 years old. Uh, and you like, excuse me, 34 years old. And, you know, you look right now, she's up to a new career high. Number 21 in the live rankings has progressed pretty comfortably through to this fourth round. Again, it's just one of those sneaky surprises. For sure. I mean, to see that she was at a career high as of like this week was yeah. unexpected to be sure. I mean, looking at how she got to the round of 16, perhaps less surprising given how the, the Kudermetova section fell apart a little bit and no one. Yeah, listen to this draw. Make the fourth round. Yeah. Teague, Martich, Volinets. All yeah, due I mean, respect. She's beating who she's supposed to be. But man, like she put herself in this position by being the th- 23 seed. Yeah. And not not implausible that she beats Pliskova, who's played well, but obviously Pliskova has not been at a thousand percent, you know, in the last year, thanks to that injury that she got before the, the 2022 Australian Open, but good to see her, you know, again, another power player who's hitting her way through this draw, maybe more firepower than Zhang. So 
We'll see how that pans out for her. And then I'm also surprised to see the way Caroline Garcia has held up the way she had. She definitely mm-hmm. didn't look even as dominant as her first round looked against Seaboff. She didn't look super confident. And then to ru- come back from a set down against Ziegmund, who can present all kinds of issues. And then to get uh, power <laughs> Grand Slam powerhouse, Magda Lynette, continuing to uh, is the last poll standing, I think. Isn't that true? <laughs> yeah. Uh, fascinating one for sure i'm glad you liked that joke as much as you did she is the last poll standing yes ego was knocked out that would have i bet you could no because i was thinking of like her cats and i was like no he lost oh oh, any other poll i'm like maybe someone in doubles one of them could still be alive in doubles but yes no it's 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 a fair it's a fair uh point in Magdalene reaching her first second week at a slam certainly has to be uh, on the list. But that leads me to a great segment I want to do here with you. And Ooh. again, uh, just a few left and then I'm going to let you go. Real or fake? As we look at this first month of the season, is this a real thing we have to be thinking about moving forward or is this fake? Let's start with players who are still alive in the draw. Donna Vekic who makes the San Diego final, now into the uh, fourth round here at this Australian Open. Now, news that was broken on the Cracked Interviews podcast, I would point out back in December, she is now working with Pam Shriver, as you alluded to, which was something I think Pam announced. Maybe I heard it from you because I remember hearing it and I didn't know where I'd heard it from. So thank you, Crack Rackets. Yeah, you're you're welcome, DK. But obviously you look for Vekic, makes that San Diego final, uh, wins all three matches, I'll be in pretty comfortably and easily at United Cup. Now wins over Select Mateva, Samsonova, Parizas Diaz. Again, not the toughest draw to get to round number four, but guess what? It's a fourth-round appearance that gets her back into the top 50. And you look for Vekic now back up to number 43. She really doesn't have that much to defend until the end of next season. Real or fake? Is, is Vekic back? Oh, I want it to be real. I want it to be real yeah. in the worst way. I mean, I've been talking to Donna Vekic my whole career. <laughs> like yeah. she, we, she, she and I Is go she way back. your JJ Wolf slash Ben Shelton? She may be one of the, yeah. the, one of the very first like articles I I'm like loath to call in an article, like for like a free website that I wrote back <laughs> in college was about Tashkent 2012 finalist Donna Vekic. Yes. Audacious claim that yes. the fact that she underperformed in juniors didn't really mean anything. And she was going to do like, I have a Williams sisters. Esque. I was like, you know, also didn't play juniors, the Williams sisters. So <laughs> <laughs> didn't necessarily pan out like that, but I, I mean, I love Donna. She is probably the most professional player that I've ever had to deal with. Just the easiest to talk to, just a normal, mature person who has a lot of, you know, fantastic outside interests and has a good support system around her. Doesn't have, you know, obviously I think she made a physio change over the offseason, still has great, you know, feelings towards him. Things are just moving in a very positive, rational, emotional channel for her. And it feels like things are perhaps coming together, if for no other reason, the fact that she feels healthy. I mean, when she was playing here last year, she had trouble moving. And even over the summer, she was talking about that to me in D.C., feeling like that she was still not super confident in the legs. It's all coming together for her now. You know, maybe just feeling just the emotional lightness of showing up on her in her outfits and just having Pam Shriver as a new voice on her team. I hope it's real because she's someone who could play well pretty much on all surfaces, not not the least of which grass, which is her favorite, but even on clay and on certainly on hard courts, she's a factor when the when the serve and forehand are working. So I, I hope it's real. It's not Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club, but again like a a beta garcia no we extend we extend brunch privileges to vekic where it's like you can come hang on sundays because you you take the ball early on the rise you get the ethos of what this club is supposed to be about and so yeah she's striking the ball brilliantly she's moving well and the biggest thing is you can just tell she's confident again and like willing to go down swinging which again given the struggles she'd had over the previous 18 months you could understand why that was so difficult for so long all right 
maybe the biggest winner from a surprise standpoint of the month of January. And again, I have one, two, three, four, five names for you in real or fake, so four to go. Julin, uh, Lin Ju, excuse me, the 28-year-old from China who reached a quarterfinal first week of the season, got the win over Venus, if memory serves me correct as well, um, reaches the fourth round here, plays some extraordinary tennis to do so, knocking out Sakari, obviously, in the third round, played a really fun three-set match late last night in Australia, early this morning here on the East Coast before getting knocked out in three by Vika. You look for her, again, another player 28 years old, not someone you'd expect to be playing their absolute best tennis, and yet up to number 54, which is a new career high in the live rankings, real or fake? I've talked a lot about Julian sort of in an, a peripheral way because she is the fourth member of that 2015 WTA Finals invitational lineup that includes Naomi Osaka, Caroline Garcia, and Ongebor. And Julian was always that fourth player. Oh, that didn't really? really work out for her. Yes. Voted oh, by the man. fans. They were Good all fan call. voted, and yet they were all... Uh, in that tournament together. So it was a strangely predictive tournament in retrospect, certainly the way uh, Naomi and Owens and Caro have played. But I mean, to read the WTA insider's perspective of Julian, you could certainly build an arc for her over the last couple of months, you know, that she you know made the second round of Guadalajara. She felt that she played well against Adara Kasakane, even though she didn't win and comes starts the year, gets a win over Venus for whatever that's worth, and then plays really good here. And is just feeling confident, but I kind of would have wanted to see her beat Vika if I was really thinking this is legit, but, you know, has a clean ground game. If she's continuing to feel confident, even if she loses this match to Vika, someone who can compete on, on hard courts on, on, on even on quicker and slower surfaces, perhaps I I would want to see more from her for sure. I would say maybe no clear cut weapons. Great athlete. Someone who you feel like could be a litmus test to get just like most of the WTA right now. Yeah. Good athlete. I'd put her like 52 in the world feels about right. Like that feels okay. like it's sustaining that year. Yeah. And now she'll get the opportunity certainly to play all the big events, indoor hard courts, uh, certainly in the month of February. now. I mean, yeah, this is, exactly. Yeah. Life becomes, you know, again, we'll see her Guadalajara six seed. Lock it in right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not Guadalajara. Monterey. Sorry. Oh, What's okay. coming up in February? <laughs> like, yeah. What's the yeah. February one? Do they you're, not have – yeah, your Monterey's, your Acapulco's. I don't know. Yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. Head, exactly. There's definitely but, yeah, that, that golden Okay, now, yeah. now you're in. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> all right. On the other side, and it's an eye test thing more so than a result thing because there hasn't been any pronounced success, really like signature victory for this player in this first month. But I said it on the mini break the first week of the season. I said it to my producer, Brett Connors, who was with me when I was broadcasting for T2 that first week of January. You watch her play. You see the intensity. You just see how fit she clearly looks, how well she's moving. Victoria Azarenka is on one right now. And I do think it's an eye test thing because, again, watching her play, there's just a fluidity of movement that I haven't seen since she like, – because she really hasn't been healthy since September 2020 when she wins the Western Southern Open, makes the final of the U.S. Open – but, oh, man, DK, she looks good. And, again, Victoria Azarenka is the oldest 33-year-old in the world in terms of tennis world. Like, if you told me she was 36, 37 for how long she's been in our lives, I would believe that. Still just 33 years old. Moving well, serving well, has won this event before. Uh, obviously, you look at the quarterfinal field, Rabakina ostapenko Pagula herself, she's the most experienced player left on the top half of the draw. And, really in the event at large, real or not real for this Vika? 
It's funny. Bika and I also go way back because I was at yeah. her uh, career breakthrough Grand Slam match against Martina Hingis at the 2007 wow. US Open. If you want to feel any older, Vika, let me help you out there because like <laughs> 2007 Martina Hingis, like two, 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 two elements that it just have not survived the sands of time in the last 15, 20 years. But I mean, I think you go back to that 2020 run, you know, she was able to kind of get on a roll. She didn't have to leave the site at the US Open. She got to play Cincy in New York and she kind of just got to play a slew of players who were in the exact headspace to get steamrolled by Avika Azarenka. And we're kind of here again with her. I mean, she's no one to your point. She's beaten. I feel like, wow, like this is, replicable <laughs> replicable so she's definitely someone who i think has a great shot at making the semis maybe she'll even make the final the way she did at the us open but to think of this as a long-term thing i go back to 2020 and it super wasn't and maybe yes a little bit was that of that was injuries but i think she's someone who can run hot and then often doesn't so i think this is more of the same for her i don't, I don't want to call it fake because she's certainly playing great tennis but it's not, I don't know how sustainable this is, but it's great for her that she's still capable of pulling this together for whatever yeah. it is. Perfectly framed. When she's been healthy, she's actually been this player over the past three years. She just hasn't been healthy, like mm. at all, in my opinion. And so I agree. When she runs hot, this is the level she's capable of. A massive opportunity certainly here uh, in this quarterfinal round. But look, she's going to take on Jessica Pagula. And in terms of real or fake for Pagula, here's what I want to ask. Is she actually number one in the world good? Because watching her play Krejcikova and watching her beat Iga, obviously, in United Cup and just the level we've seen throughout the course of this first month, she looks like a tier one player. Like the athleticism, the fluidity in the outer thirds, the ability to impose herself with her first strike. I can't believe I'm saying this, but Pagula looks like she's playing better than she did in 2022. Again, results-wise, we... Still no massive signature victory, although, again, as mo as notable as that Rabakina match was, the better match yesterday was actually Pagula Krejcikova. I'm telling you, go watch the highlights, the physicality, the combination of defense to offense, the willingness for each of them to move forward. It was my favorite women's match of the day. But Pagula seems to have taken another leap here, DK, to start 2023, and I'm just wondering how real is it? It's weird, right? I mean, like yeah. I go back to Fort Worth and it was like, there's this great moment from The Real Housewife of Beverly Hills when Lisa <laughs> Renick goes, I don't think we're ever going to see Denise Richards again. And that's kind of how I felt about Jessica Pagula at the WTA Finals. I mean, the way that she just could not win any of those three matches. And yes, she had her chances against Jabor. They were tight sets against Sakari and, and Sabalenka. But this was just, it really felt like this is your ceiling Vamo, uh, you know, adios. Like it just felt like that was like the end for for Pagula. I didn't know if we were ever going to see her play top eight tennis again. And she comes in, starts the season, and gets a win over Iga, which is you know United Cup. Does it count? Is it real? I mean, it's re hopefully she thinks it's real because it's only good for her confidence to think that it's a legit win. And then she comes here and plays just dominant tennis. You know, this is someone who I think again like that sort of Azarenka mold of someone who could just play consistent suffocating baseline tennis doesn't have any obvious weaknesses in good physical shapes clearly in good mental shape I mean for all of what was going on with like the bills at the start of the season it didn't rattle her she didn't end up you know taking any bad losses as a result and she certainly would have had a reason for her heart to be elsewhere given what was happening with with uh with Damar ha Damar Hacklin with Damar sure. Hacklin 
Nah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, or Hamlin. De- you're Hamlin. Oh, my Hamlin. God. Jeez. Oh, Embarrassing. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was, podcast, like, I was like, what are you talking about? Demar I was like, Hamlin, oh, he's yes. trying to make a football reference. She was shouting him out. You know, it felt yeah. like, you know, she's probably very invested in the players and knows probably all of them. So the fact that that didn't rattle her and has only inspired her to play better tennis. That's great. I mean, that's what you're looking for. Like, what are you made of, Jessica Pagula? And I think I thought I had an answer in Fort Worth and we're getting a different one in Australia. So, I mean, if she can make it a Grand Slam semifinal here, definitely real. She, you know, if she folds to Azarenka, more of the same. Yeah, it will be fascinating, by the way. And I saw this sentiment and joke already expressed on Twitter. But you're Terry Pagula, Jessica Pagula's father. The Bills play in the A. Let's say they beat the Bengals. They'll play in the AFC Championship game probably next Sunday, which will be right around the same time again as a hypothetical Jessica Pagula women's singles final. Now, here's the thing. The owner of the team that wins the AFC Championship is on stage accepting the trophy, giving a speech, and obviously given everything that's happened with the Bills season this year, you would imagine Terry Pagula wants to be there. That said... Like, if his daughter's playing in the women's singles final, he has to hand off those responsibilities to the GM, right? Because I'm pretty sure it's a no-brainer. You're like, look, daughter win Australian Open, team win Super Bowl. It's a, it's actually maybe the toughest sports conundrum a, like, a man could be in to be like, my team, I somehow own a football team, and they're about to win the Super Bowl versus my daughter, which I created, you know, is about to win a slam. Now, I think there's no doubt he goes to Jess's match, but like, what a weekend that might be. First of all, I thought you were going to talk about the joke that I saw on Twitter that I'm okay referencing because Jessica also replied to it, but it was huh. Jessica Pagula's playing like they're about to get rid of the uh, yeah. estate tax. <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> they're about to like bump up the estate, whatever, however the Yeah, bump goes. up but the she estate was like, tax, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh no. Um, but that it's was true. funny I mean, though. Yeah, it's, I, we're certainly far from her being in a Grand Slam final. She's been in many Grand Slam quarterfinals now. It feels like this is her third straight in Australia alone. This is definitely... Mm-hmm as good of a shot as she has had out of those quarterfinals to go deeper here. She'll only have to, you know, only quote unquote, have to beat Azarenka and one of Ostapenko and Rabakina. That doesn't feel uh, impossible. Certainly doesn't feel improbable that she can um, make a final out of this section. Yeah. I mean, I, I would have to think that family comes first. I mean, it's sort of a, do they split duties? You know, is, 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 Ter- is Terry on, on the stage and is Kim in Australia? I mean, maybe that's how they end up, you know, figuring it out, but that's, yeah, it's, that's a brutal choice because obviously, you know, this is the pinnacle perhaps of your daughter's career versus everything that, that your team has gone through. So it's a, that's a, that's a rough one. It's not a Sophie's choice. It's a Jessica's choice. The and Jesse's be, choice. Yeah. Or Terry's choice. I wish that I, I had Jesse's choice. Also, yeah, exactly. In the end. All right. I've put it off for 58 minutes. It's time. Let's have the conversation, DK. Are you sitting down? Are you sitting down? Are you prepared for it? I mean, I'm engaging, as Meredith Marks would say. All right. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> Arena Sabalenka. Let's just talk about it. I've put it off as long as I could because I don't want to put this into the air. I don't want to jinx whatever's going on through her mind and ruin the ethos surrounding what is, again, once described by Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club board member Jeff Sackman as there's a lock in the manager of the country club's uh, office and the code to the lock has never been cracked. But if you were to crack it, you'll open it up. And it's actually just a photo of Arena Sabalenka, who is the answer to the question. I mean... You look at what Sabalenka's accomplished through this first month of 2023 to blitz through Adelaide without dropping a set, to blitz through the first three rounds of the Australian Open. She hasn't been pushed to 7-5. She hasn't been pushed to 7-6. 1-6-4 set against Teresa Martinsova in round number one, the closest set that's been contested, a routine 2-3 and three win. 
over Elisa Mertens. She had no double faults in round number three against Shelby Rogers. And look, she's been in the four to seven range from a double faults perspective. But guess what? She's actually 4% better right now this season than she was last year. And, you know, it's crazy that she's still in the five to seven range, but last year it was the 10 to 12 range. How big a difference that is the 20 to 22 range. Yeah, exactly. Which just, again, how big a difference that can make. And yet she's moving better. She's striking the ball confidently. There's like two point blips of stupidity, but it hasn't been like the five to 10 to 12 minute blips of just everything goes off the rail that we've seen in the past. Is this Sabalenka final form DK? Like, what do we do? Isn't she great? Well, it hasn't <laughs> Isn't been she the great, t- ladies and gentlemen. The thing is, let's let's dump the let's dump some water on it. It hasn't been the toughest draw. Like Martin Sova, Rogers, Mertens. I would argue that of the twelve players remaining, she's definitely in the like, on the easier half of draws to get here. Yes and no. I mean, she certainly would have lost a match at a slam to Shelby Rogers in the past. She has sure. lost to Elisa Mertens in the past. I mean, a notorious. Yeah, but not in a while. Her- no, not in a while. I remember, but I remember her breakthrough tournament. She was yeah. up, I think, match point on Mertens after beating Wozniacki, I think, yeah. either the same day or a few hours earlier, and then ends up blowing that one. It was just a brutal day because you were so excited to talk to her about the Caro win, and then she was already out of the tournament. But it's sort of the perfect draw for the way that she's playing right now, and so she's been able to to do really well. I mean, listen, what I find so what I continue to find so fascinating about Arena Sabalenka is that she is a player for for whom you would think is sort of one track mind you know I can only do this one way to, to win at, at tennis this is how I'm gonna win my matches is just by playing power power game and and that's all and I'm not thinking about anything else no plan b no other like uh nuance a, a new someone who plays a nuance free tennis when she comes in front of the microphone at, at post-match press conferences is opening up about the many new, the many little tweaks that she has made, whether it's to her serve, whether it's just to even her emotional response on court, talking this week about just there were moments where I wanted to throw my rack and I decided not to because it was just an, a waste of emotional energy that has actually allowed me to recover faster when I'm and I am having these dumb moments on the court. I am not letting that spill out into mm-hmm. five, six, seven game runs where I'm all of a sudden out of the match and what what the heck happened? I was dominating, so it makes me quite emotional to think that she's like really. Someone with such immense physical, powerful gifts is not resting on them. We've seen so many players in the past. Oh, you have so much going through. If you just change this one thing, she has gone out of her way to change every little thing that could possibly keep her from winning a slam. And it feels like we're right on the precipice, but I don't want to get too excited because we're evidently she's up against the best player of the year in Belinda Benjamin so far. So I don't want to like go all in. But based on the way that she was able to beat Mertens and Rogers, I'm inclined to think that she beats Benchich and is very much in contention to make a first grand slam final and win the title. I really, she was my pick to win at the start of the week because I didn't think, either I thought that Iga was going to lose early or I thought that she was going to, by the time she got to the final, she'd be feeling confident enough to beat Iga. So, I mean, I think it will be a tremendous weight off her shoulders to finally win a grand slam semi. And I think if she does that, she'll get in the final and play really good tennis. So with all of that said, I really, really, really hope that it's real. I would, I would, and I would hate to think that a potential hiccup here kind of like sends her off kilter for several weeks because she's actually in a position where she's number five now, has a lot of opportunity to make up points between now and the clay swing. She is someone who has historically underperformed in the sunshine swing that Indy Wells Miami tournament hasn't really had a great result at either of them. And she's someone who has the game, certainly on any surface. So if she can parlay whatever success she's able to continue here in Australia into the, the Middle East and through the North American hard courts. 
you know, suddenly the race for number two, number one, gets a little more interesting going into the clay court swing. And that's what we want to see. I mean, we're talking about players who can rival Iga in individual matches, who can rival her through a 12-month stretch. I still think Sabalink is the only one. Rabakin is coming up the rear now with that one. But yeah, I mean, this is what a time for her to be in the middle of a streak. I mean, I think she certainly would have traded in her Osterville-Linz Abu Dhabi streak for an AO run like she's having right now. So, I mean... Fingers crossed because this is the moment for her, I think. It really is her moment. And if it doesn't happen, I I worry. Yeah. No, I mean, again, we've seen these sort of streaks before from her. You mentioned the Osterva Linz. Didn't she do the Wuhan and WTA Elite Trophy event run? A yes, couple which of I was the, there for. I was there for both of those. <laughs> 2018 or 19, whatever 19. That, it was yeah, right before the pandemic. Yeah, yeah right pre-pandemic. <laughs> so we've seen this sort of three-week, four-week run out of Sabalenka before. But she hasn't dropped a set during it this time. And again, it's an eye test thing where her power overwhelms opponents. She's moving so well. And she just has time to do all the things she can do. And truth be told, and we've said this before, there's nothing on a court Arena Sabalenka can't do. You know, again, she's always had the ability to do a little bit of everything. The creativity with her passing shots, the slices, the willingness to move forward, combined with the most evident skill, the overwhelming power, she stayed calm. She stayed collected. And look, this Benchich match is going to be a test because Belinda Benchich has played really good ball to really just since winning the Olympics back in 2021. And again, she got a big Grand Slam uh thing off her back after not reaching any second weeks last year. She does it right away here at the Australian Open to start the season. I think these are two of the four best players in the draw. Like, I would take the form of Sabalenka, Benchic, Pagula, and Rabakina probably over everyone else left in the field. And two of these players are playing a round of 16 match. I said it yesterday. I think Igor Rabakina, we could look back as the Muguruza Osaka match of this tournament. I think this Sabalenka Benchich one could also be one of those where it's a tight three setter. Maybe someone has match points but doesn't convert. The winner of it goes on to win the tournament. I do think both are playing that well, certainly given the winner plays either Vekic or Fruvertova. They will be the favorite. And boy, wouldn't a Benchich Vekic matchup given their friendship? How fascinating would that be for us tennis fans? But man, like you're right. Like she's cleaned up the serve. There's a composure. It's so clear. From Even start the misses are just yeah. like better. You just have no fear because last year she could not serve. That was like not an exaggeration. Like could not get the ball in the court. And even now her misses just feel oh, just by a little bit, and then gets in a clean second serve and gets this gets the point going in a way that doesn't have her in a total defensive position. I mean, a benchage package match wasn't super electrifying the last time it was a Grand Slam quarterfinal, but at the same time, the last time Sabalenka and Benchage played. She was at match point in Dubai and Benchich ends up winning and then goes on to win the title. So it, it could be that that it could be that kind of matchup for them. Yeah. And right now, by the way, Rabakina plus three twenty, she's the favorite to win the title. Pagula three plus three fifty, Sablanka plus four hundred, Garcia plus six hundred. Again, Benchich ten to one, Ostapenko eleven, Vika twelve. Those are really the seven of the twelve they see as a tier above everyone else, but I think Sabalenka has played the best, according to my eyes thus far. I David's shaking his head as if in agreement. Before I let you go, let's make some second-week predictions. DK, as of right now, who do you have capturing, getting to the final and capturing this 2023 Australian Open title? 
Oh gosh, with my head or my heart, I ask you. Um, <laughs> I mean, would I love to see a Rabaki in a Sabalenka final? Oh. Yes. Do I got two eyes and a heart? Absolutely. I mean, I would, I would love, love an Astapenko Sabalenka final. That would just be oh, because I love tennis. Because I'm, yeah. I'm someone who loves classy tennis, and that's what I want to see in my Grand Slam finals. I would get up at three thirty in the morning for an Astapenko Sabalenka final. Hold me to it, because I may not be working on that shift. But <laughs> I mean, realistically, I mean, I'm gonna, I. I I'm going to say Rabakita, just the way that she's played, played really good against Collins, played even better against Fiontech, should have the sort of wherewithal to withstand Ostapenko. And if she's in the semis against either an Azarenka or a first-time Pagula, I kind of think she has the ascendancy there. I mean, the way that Rabakina closed that Wimbledon was even more impressive than the fact that she won it because she dog-walked Halep. And then, then really, after losing the first hit against Jabor, didn't really look back in that one. So, And then if I'm looking at the bottom half of the draw... And if it's if it, if not now, when for Sabalenka? So I have to go with her. And then if it's between the two of them, I kind of think Sabalenka just has that emotional edge on Rabakina. When we go back to that Wimbledon match, it feels like Rabakina could get a little nervous playing for a second slam. Sometimes it's almost tougher than the first. That sort of underdog energy from Sabalenka. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. We get like a really great end to this power tennis fortnight. Yeah, I mean, look, I say this lovingly. To you, Magda Lynette and Jung Shui. Outside of those two, I think every other permutation, there's a fun storyline yeah. to be found. I was going to say that, yeah. You know, again, Pagula, Azarenka, Ostapenko, Rabakina. I actually think we can sell all four of those players on the top half of the draw. No matter who emerges to the final, that's a good story. Look, if it's Pliskova all these years later, is the window still open? Garcia, how good she's been these last six months. Sabalenka, the journey the past five years and... Benchich was arguably the best women's junior of the 2010s. And, you know, Fruvertova maybe the best of the 2020s thus far. Vekic, obviously, the comeback story. It's a lot of meat on the bone. It's it's a really good final week of players. Boy, Pagula has just been on a mission. And my eyes say she's been the most relentlessly, consistently good of anyone in the top half. According to Tennis Abstract right now, she's got a 23.9% chance of winning the event. She's the favorite, 42% chance to advance to the final out of that top half. You said Rabakina? I said Sabalenka to win. Yeah, but who do you have as the finalist? Rabakina. Yeah. All right, I'll go Pagula then. And yeah, I've been saying Sabalenka is going to win every major since 2021 started because eventually I have to be right, right? So I'll roll with you, DK. Give me Sabalenka over Pagula, but... Man, if if it's – again, just about anyone at this point. I think it's a pretty good storyline for us to sell. With that said, any final thoughts, DK, slash what storylines will you be selling us over the course of the next week on Tennis.com? I'm just ride the wave here at this point <laughs> yeah. in the tournament. <laughs> but um, uh, No, yeah, I was going to say that. I think I said that a couple of days ago where I felt like we were really – the draw was hitting a point where we were running out of, huh, champions. Like I feel like whoever wins pretty much, like you said, barring perhaps a Zhang Shui, although – be a quite an inspirational moment of Chang Shui, you know, six or seven years after making that emotional 2016 Australian Open run, goes on to win a slam or even, you know, a Fervatova or even, I mean, a Magdalenette would be probably the most question mark of the players who are left. But um, yeah, I, I just really like the way that this draw has turned out. It's been a, a weird one in women's tennis for the last couple of years. And it does feel like we're finally rounding into some modicum of. I don't want to say normalcy because the world number one did lose in the fourth round, but it still feels like 
things are starting to make a bit more sense. And hopefully that that trend holds over the next couple of months. And with that said, I'll be covering everything on .com and Baseline, all the funny moments. You can find it on Baseline, all the serious stuff, find it on .com, go back and forth, bookmark both pages, and it's a good time through the end of the week. That's what I like to hear. Well, again, DK, we always appreciate having you on this show to help us catch up on everything that's unfolded. And again, this is part one of a two-part State of the Union where things sit during uh, through this 2023 Australian Open. I'm actually having two Davids on the show today. David Gertler here. Uh, excuse me, David Gertler for the men, David Kane here. Um, so shout out to the Davids as well uh, for taking the time to recap everything. Shout out, as always, of course, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who has what sort of an editing job to do, DK? Because I know you oh, know it. Of an editing job. There it is. That's I'm glad you haven't gotten to do that uh-huh. yet. So that was a good yeah, that was a nice little that's an alley oop on this podcast. You just dunked that bad boy home. So thank you very much, DK. Much appreciated. And of course, shout out to our dear friends at tennis point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for the fantastic David Kane, who you can follow at DKTNS on Twitter and read over on tennis.com and baseline for our fantastic super producer Daniel Westoff, for our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? And that's the break. And we will see you all later today. Thank you as always, DK. Bye, guys.